Good afternoon, this is Resonance 104.4 FM. My name is Frank Key and it's time for Hooting Yard on the Air. Once again, we have one of those exciting weeks when we don't have the theme music at the beginning, but we do have it maybe later on. It's just you never quite know what's going to happen. Um, a bit of a mishmash rag bag of a show this week. Um, just various stuff, really. And I'm going to begin with a piece called Blodgett's Jihad. Bad Blodgett. One Tuesday in spring, he went a-roaming among the perspex caves of Lamont, part of that magnificent artificial coastline immortalised in mesotints by the mesotintist Rex Tint. Sheltering in one of the caves from a sudden downpour, Blodgett took his sketchbook out of his satchel and passed the time making a series of cartoon drawings of historical figures. The pictures were imaginary likenesses, of course, for Blodgett was ignorant of many things, and he had no idea what blind Jack of Knaresborough looked like. Nor was he at all sure that his double cartoon of Barbara Stanwyck and Fred McMurray bore any resemblance to the stars of Double Indemnity. The rain showed no sign of ceasing, so Blodgett filled page after page, scribbling drawings of Marcus Aurelius, Christopher Smart, Christopher Plummer, Mary Baker Eddy, Percy Bish and Mary Shelley, and the Prophet Muhammad, among others. It was this last cartoon that caused ructions which would have so decisive an effect on Blodgett's life. Later that day, on his way home from the Perspex Caves of Lamont, Blodgett inadvertently left his sketchbook on the bus. A week or so later, a bus company employee was checking through the lost property and took a few moments to leaf through the book. Turning the fateful page, this employee, an adherent of the Islamic faith, was by turns outraged, humiliated, mortally offended and infuriated when he saw Blodgett's cartoon. As is the way with such matters, he immediately arranged for copies to be distributed to mullahs and imams around the world so that they too could share his outrage, humiliation, mortal offence and fury. Soon there were calls for Blodgett to be beheaded or otherwise put to death and he went into hiding. To understand what all the fuss was about, maybe you need to look at the cartoon and... Um, Blodgett's cartoon of the Prophet Muhammad is online at, uh, on the Hooting Yard website. Just put Hooting Yard into Google and it will take you straight there. In an interesting side note, there was a similar flurry of anger from a sect devoted to the cult of Fred McMurray. But this fizzled out after Blodgett pledged to attend a penitential screening of one of the actor's late pieces of Disney pap. Meanwhile, hiding out in the perspex caves of Lamont, the evil cartoonist had time to think through what had happened. Blodgett was aware that the Victorian atheist Charles Bradlaugh had described the Christian Gospels as being, quote, 
concocted by illiterate, half-starved visionaries in some dark corner of a Greco-Syrian slum, unquote. And he did not think it much of a leap to conclude that the Prophet Muhammad was an equally deluded soul, although perhaps a better organised one, with access to weaponry, which enabled him to spread his message faster and more efficiently. Around this time, Blodgett received through an intermediary an offer from the furious and offended Islamists. The sentence of death could be rescinded, they suggested, if he made a sincere conversion to their faith and promised to live out the rest of his life of his... I'm going to begin that sentence again. The sentence of death could be rescinded, they suggested, if he made a sincere conversion to their faith and promised to live out the rest of his days in submission to Allah. Blodgett considered this for about 40 seconds before rejecting it. Apart from anything else, he reasoned, it was very unlikely that Mrs Blodgett would agree to spend the rest of her life cocooned in a person-sized tent and to stop going out by herself. Shortly after this, still in hiding, Blodgett had a brainwave. Indeed, he became somewhat furious and offended himself. The conversion offer, he decided, was an example of the old cliché, if you can't beat them, join them. Well... He would join them, but not in the way they thought. If half-starved visionaries could propagate the Christian Gospels and Muhammad could claim to have heard the voice of God as so many others down the centuries had insisted with varying degrees of success that they were in direct contact with supernatural powers, what was to stop Blodgett announcing that he, and only he, had found the true path? From this spark of inspiration was Blodgettism born. He began to make clandestine visits to the municipal library at Blister Lane, devouring, among other works, the Koran, the Bible, the collected works of L. Ron Hubbard and David Ick, the Book of Mormon, sacred texts from all the major religions and many of the minor ones, even a couple of novels by Ayn Rand. After a few weeks of constant reading, Blodgett set out to define Blodgettism. He didn't want it to be a synthesis of every other faith. That seemed a little too pat, a little too Blavatsky-esque. And nor did he want it to be simply an amalgam of the good bits. Considering that he was still under sentence of death from a number of shouting men with beards, Blodgett wanted Blodgettism to be a faith at once as rigorous and intransigent as Islam. Thus, he cast aside with reluctance some of the more amusing things he had learned, such as underwear regulations in Mormonism and Mr Hubbard's intergalactic drivel, and fixed his attention on jihad. As far as jihad as inner struggle was concerned, Blodgett could not give a hoot. But jihad as holy war appealed to him as a way of taking on his persecutors, and thus became the most important feature of the Blodgettist religion. Excuse me while I clear my throat. <coughs> in the book of Blodgett, published in paperback the following year, it has to be said that the founder of the new religion makes an impeccably reasonable argument in favour of his faith. Having devised a set of laws called the Blodgettia, he announces that it's the duty of everyone on earth to obey them or be killed. 
taking his cue mainly from the Quran and the Old Testament, Blodgett devised an appropriately illogical and arbitrary set of regulations for human behaviour. The list of laws is too long and abstruse to tell you the whole lot here, but a couple of examples will suffice. The Blodgettia, law number 12. Thou shalt not eat plums within ten yards of a pig or a goat or a starling. Those that disobey this law will be bundled up in sacking and thrown into a canal. The Blodgettia, law number 49. It is forbidden to wear your hat at other than a jaunty angle. See appendix for diagrams of angles of jauntiness and non-jauntiness. Officials of the Committee for the Promotion of Blodgettian Virtue and the Wholesale Suppression of Blodgettian Vice and Abomination, armed with protractors and tape measures, will fan out across the land, and where they find hats worn at non-jaunty angles, they shall proceed to poke the malefactor with pointy sticks before putting them to an entirely justifiable death. Of course, the Prophet Muhammad was able to spread his word through a combination of historical and geographic circumstance and violence. Alas, blodgetism never really took root, numbering perhaps only three or four devotees at its height, including Blodgett himself. But there are a few copies of the Book of Blodgett which have not been pulped or thrown into dustbins, and they may yet inspire a new generation of fanatical adherents who will demand in big, shouty voices that they are right and everyone else is wrong and get very upset and angry if you disagree with them, and it will be your fault if they decide to blow you up or chop off your head. Be warned. So that was um, that was related, I suppose, in some way to Islam, and now something about Christianity. There is a theme developing. It's not just a ragbag, is it? Anyway, it's become fashionable among pious young Christian folk, particularly in the United States, to wear wristbands bearing the letters WWJD. This simple formula announces that the wearer has devoted their life to Christ, and faces any and all situations by asking the question, what would Jesus do? Leaving aside the objection that the daily challenges faced by a mystic carpenter in Palestine 2,000 years ago may not be wholly applicable to the kinds of issues facing a young person hanging around a mall in Poughkeepsie in the 21st century, I think there's much to be said for this approach. If nothing else, it must lead to some interesting behaviour. 
For one thing, Jesus had a tendency to perform miraculous feats, such as walking on water or distributing improbable amounts of bread and fish. <coughs> Sorry, the uh, hangover of a cold. I'm still coughing a bit. I'll go back to the beginning of that paragraph. For one thing, Jesus had a tendency to perform miraculous feats, such as walking on water or distributing improbable amounts of bread and fish. Then there were his occasional temperamental outbursts, as when he shooed a gang of moneylenders out of a temple. It's to be hoped that the pious teenies emulate this kind of thing rather than Jesus' rather priggish sermonising, for which he had a weakness. Although there are one or two nuggets of wisdom in his preaching, more often it's reminiscent of the airy New Age twaddle one might get from Deepak Chopra and his ilk. The difficulty remains, though, that a contemporary teenager is going to face circumstances that Jesus simply never had to deal with all those years ago. Nowadays, the average young American Christian doesn't spend much time involved with oxen, say, or fatted calves, much less with tares and talents and the blood of the lamb. Young Tad or Biff is likely to get more het up about soda pop, baseball caps and stadium rock. Working out what Jesus would do thus becomes a very fraught endeavour. Hours upon hours of biblical study will go some way to resolving the problems, but sooner or later the morally anguished teen will resort to booze and drugs and firearms. Here at Hooting Yard, we've come up with an elegant solution to these modern dilemmas. We'll soon be unleashing on the market wristbands bearing the legend WWDD. What would Dobson do? And of course, there's a simple beauty to this, in the sense that whatever the situation, the answer is always, write a pamphlet out of print. Um, I've just realised, with the next piece being called The Agony in the Garden, there definitely does seem to be a theme here. The Agony in the Garden, of course, one of the climactic moments of the New Testament. Um, this is called The Agony in the Garden, not the New Testament version. There was a man in my back garden, and he was in agony. I'm going to tell you why. This man had speared his foot with a garden fork. One of the very sharp tines of the fork had plunged through his boot and sock and foot and more sock and the sole of the boot and into the muck, forced downwards by the man's other foot, or rather by the muscular power of his leg, bent at the knee. He was wearing a pair of butcher's trousers, this man, but he was not a butcher. He was a clumsy thief, inexperienced in the use of gardening implements. It was the middle of the night, and there was no moon, or I should say the moon was hidden by monstrous black clouds, so it was very, very dark. Nonetheless, one would have thought the thief who clambered over the fence to steal things from my back garden would have carried a torch or some other means of illuminating his criminal intent. 
But not only was he a clumsy thief, he was a thief who lacked foresight. Because the day was still light when he set out from the hut O'Ne'er-do-wells where he lived, he seems to have assumed it would still be light when he approached the wooden fence which divides my back garden from the old muddy lane. But it was no longer light. I lived so far away from the hut O'Ne'er-do-wells that it took him hours and hours to reach my garden. His route was crooked and even convoluted, for he hugged the hedgerows and dared not stride across open fields, nor follow main roads, and nor did he risk using any of the public transport systems available, the pneumatic railways or the canal barges, for example, for being bent on crime, he did not wish to be seen. He may have been clumsy and lacking in foresight, but the man in my back garden whose foot was impaled by a fork was a master of stealth, I will give him that. In all the hours he skulked across the land in his butcher's trousers and pastry maker's jacket and dusty Springfield hat, he was not seen by a single other living being, except for some cows in a field, and a passing goat, and attentive birds, and countless tiny things that creep and fly and hover and buzz. But none of these can speak, unlike human beings, who, had they seen the thief, might have denounced him to the police. For all his stealth, however, and irrespective of the cack-handedness of his fork-digging, the clumsy thief's crime would never have succeeded. He had not made rigorous plans. Had he done so, he would have learned that I am a detective whose tenacity in tracking down malefactors is legendary. One of the things that makes me so good at my job is the fact that I never sleep. As a child, at a fairground, on a hot September day, I toppled from the top of a helter-skelter and landed on my head. I have never since then visited the land of Nod. The metal plate in my skull is barely visible, and it's been one of the incidental pleasures of my life to amass a collection of strikingly colourful eye patches. So it was that in the middle of the night, when all sensible people are fast asleep in their beds, I was wide awake. I can't remember what I was doing, darning an eye patch or sharpening a pencil perhaps, or carrying out experiments on a badger. When I heard the telltale sounds of a wrongdoer climbing over the fence from the old muddy lane, I went over to the window. My working eye is a superb mechanism, and I watched as, in pitch darkness, the thief grabbed the fork from the pile of forks, searched the lawn for the big chalk X underneath which was buried the booty of the Blister Lane bank robberies, and with his very first fork thrust, speared his foot and howled. I promised to tell you how there came to be a man in my back garden, a man in agony, and now I have done so, and you can't say fairer than that.
regular listeners will know that um, one of my favourite books or, or pamphlets, um, and this is a genuine pamphlet, is Further Science by Norman Davis. Um, I've only got a copy, a very lovely little pamphlet. Um, I've only got Further Science Book 20, published by Norman Davis in 2001. And annoyingly, it contains no other information. Um, nowhere to contact Mr. Davis. Um, and every now and then on this show, I read a little section from it. And maybe one day, Norman Davis will listen and hear it and get in touch with me. Here's the... Um, it's difficult to summarise the um, content of this pamphlet, so I'll just read the section called Alaskan Birds. One, that analysis of Alaskan birds gives insight into bird evolution. Two, that thus there is a contrast between the cliff ancestral gregarious pigeon type, Bill Knob, fast pulsed day puffin billing, fish eating, burrowing and the night lonesome shrimp squid eating, sticky oil swallow-like nest burrowing ex-pigeon bill knob petrels, thin wing, very slow pulsed, long ocean migration petrels, clearly polarisation extremes of ex-cliff ancestral pigeons, etc. More about Blodgett now. Pre or post jihad, I'm not entirely sure. Through clenched teeth in municipal yet verdant parkland, sprawled on grass, Blodgett recited the alphabet. A is for vinegar, he grunted. B is for worms. C is for villains swinging from the gallows. A little voice inside Blodgett's head told him to stop. He knew he'd got it wrong again. He rolled himself down the gentle incline of the grass <coughs> until he came to rest. Then he sat up and picked flecks of plant life out of his hair. The sun was shining, but the park was almost deserted. He peered across the green towards the chalk ice tent and licked his lips. Would he splash out on a chalk ice? Blodgett fumbled in his pockets for change, but they were empty. He wondered if there was anybody in charge of the chalk ice tent. Perhaps it too was deserted, and the chalk ices were there for the taking. It was more likely that there would be some kind of automatic chalk ice dispenser, but Blodgett knew he could jimmy it open with his jimmy. He recalled that he had left his jimmy at home in a cupboard with his empty Yohort cartons. Blodgett always pronounced yogurt as yohort. He was that kind of guy. He lay down again and closed his eyes and clenched his teeth and made yet another attempt at the alphabet. A is for spinach. 
B is for the wildlife of the Great Lakes. C is for Pol Pot. It was no use. Clambering to his feet, Blodgett ran across the green to the paddling pool. Though it was the height of summer, the pool had been drained. All the water had been collected in a sort of giant concrete bath located a few feet below ground, inaccessible to anyone who was not employed by the municipal park authorities. Had Blodgett known that several park keepers were at that very moment enjoying frolics in the subterranean pool, he would have become angry, and had he become angry, he would have tilted his head up and stared boldly at the sun and let forth a stream of execrations, and the sun would have shriveled up and died. Such was the force of Blodgett's inhuman rage. But Blodgett did not know about the underground paddling pool, nor of the antics taking place down there, so the sun was safe. He turned away and headed for the gate in the fence. He had decided to go to the docks to watch the arrival and departure of gigantic container ships. It was Wednesday and he was sure to see big boxes of bananas and bales of flax. Listeners in um, the United Kingdom will know that the Met Office shipping forecast, broadcast on BBC Radio four times a day to an audience composed mainly of landlubbers ignorant of its meaning, is one of our national treasures. Overseas listeners who have no idea what I'm talking about when I talk about the shipping forecast can read a very splendidly detailed entry in the Wikipedia a great part of the charm, of course, is those wonderful names, Cromarty, Dogger, German Bite. And it struck me that an equally delightful list is to be found in the stations on the Docklands Light Railway in London. And so um, I'm helpfully providing today's DLR forecast. Shadwell, Pining. Locusts, bandage, paste, 57, 12. Poplar, clattering, mordant starlings, catafalque, 6, 22. West India Key, flapping, dirigible, marmite, 82, 98. Canary Wharf, galumphing, peanuts, macadamia nuts, 6, 10. Heron Keys, Pinging and Grinding, Coat Hanger, Pot, 52, 11. Mud Shoot, Looming, Pagans, Whirling Things, 14, 14. All Saints, Clucking, Gas Canisters, Birdseed, 5, 36. 
Pudding Mill Lane. Flickering, savagery, nesting habits. 8.70. Custom House. Abseiling, pomposity and flags and a cup. 16.84. Cyprus. Choking, Yoko Ono, farm buildings. 63.71. Galleon's Reach. Muttering, plastic cutlery, monitor lizards, 43.7. Cutty Sark, preening, bevels, creosote, 19.90. Limehouse, mucking about, muck, night soil, 2.107. And that was today's Docklands Light Railways forecast from Hooting Yard. And that's the end of this week's show, I'm afraid to say. Um, hopefully, by the time I'm back next week, I won't be coughing up every five minutes. But I do hope you've enjoyed the show. And, um, yeah, that's it for this week. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.